We've been in a series called Humankind, and we've been looking at the interactions that Jesus has had with people in the Gospels. Um, and specifically, we've been asking questions in the last couple of weeks. Last week, Brad talked about the woman at the well, and we asked the question, why do we welcome? And what we saw from the story was that the redemptive, transformational uh, 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 capacity in someone's life through Jesus has the ability to impact an entire community. That's one really good reason why we welcome. And this week we're asking this question, who do we welcome? Who do we welcome into the kingdom? I'm gonna go ahead and give you the answer. It's everyone, everyone. I know, shocking. But we are called by Jesus to welcome everyone into Jesus's life. But here's the thing, it is not only lofty, it is impossible to welcome absolutely everyone. Right? Like not everyone in this room is going to have the ability to welcome absolutely everyone. But we have a phrase that was coined by Andy Stanley that we say a lot around here. Do for one what you wish you could do for all. Do for one what you wish you could do for all. The truth is, Jesus instructs his followers to love everyone. Literally everyone. Including our enemies. Right? On the Sermon on the Mount, he says, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. He doesn't even give us an out when it comes to people who are actively against us, let alone people who might offend us or annoy us, right? See, it's almost easier to say like, I love everyone, of course I love everyone, but it gets harder when those everyones get more specific, right? Like maybe I'd like to think I love everyone, but I have a hard time with that one coworker or that one neighbor down the street or that politician on the news or that person that lives in a way that offends me, that person who votes differently than I do, who thinks differently than I do. And sometimes I think when we say we love everyone, what we really mean is, well, I don't hate anyone. And is that what Jesus is calling us to? Notice Jesus doesn't command his, his disciples, tolerate your enemies, put up with those who persecute you. No, he says to bless them. This is not a passive attribute. We are to actively move towards the well-being of those who are our enemies. So, our capacity to love everyone is dependent upon our willingness to love anyone. Our capacity to love everyone is dependent upon our willingness to love anyone. And this week we're going to be looking at an example of what it means to welcome not just the idea of everyone, but actually anyone. We're going to be looking at a story found in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 26, if you want to turn there while I'm giving some context. Acts, chapter 8, verse 26. It's about a man named Philip and another man referred to as the Ethiopian. You may have noticed that during this series, we've been specifically looking at passages that cover Jesus uh, interacting with people. So why are we departing from that model today? It's interesting because if you look at the book of Acts, it was written as a part two to the gospel of Luke. Luke Acts is supposed to present as one cohesive work. And this is because the work of Jesus continues through Jesus' people led by the Spirit. Right? The author, who most believe to be Luke the physician, he's providing examples in the book of Acts of how the gospel is ongoing through the lives of Jesus' followers. Acts is short for the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And this in and of itself is a pretty powerful statement. This suggests that the work of Jesus didn't stop when he ascended. That it's ongoing through the work of the Spirit in us. And every interaction that we have with people then has the capacity to be a moment with Jesus and someone else. 
that redemption and grace taking part in their life and ours becomes a reality for us. So this story is about a man named Philip. He's nicknamed Philip the Evangelist. And he's one of the first deacons of the church in Jerusalem. And many believe that he was actually uh, involved actively in Jesus's ministry before his death and resurrection. So let's jump into the passage. Acts chapter eight, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go to the south, go, go south to the road, the desert road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of the treasury of the Condake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you were reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So Philip so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. It's a wild story. All right, well, let's unpack it a bit. First, I want us to take a look at the posture of Philip, right? The angel of the Lord comes to Philip, which is already pretty shocking. I don't know about you, but there aren't many times where an angel has come to communicate the will of God to me, right? Maybe only like 10 or 20 times. And he tells him, Go and stand on a desert road from Jerusalem to Gaza. He says, go stand by a road. And Philip doesn't even question it. He asks zero questions, offers zero points of concern, zero points of hesitation. With no information or context, Philip agrees to go stand by a road. And I think at this juncture in the story, it's important to examine the posture of our own hearts. Are we as attentive as aware, as ready to follow the will of God in our lives? Are we really listening the way that Philip was? See, the, the Hebrews had this, this prayer that we first see in the book of Deuteronomy. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then later when Jesus quotes it, he adds, love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, sorry, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And Jesus adds, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Now that word Shema is translated here in English, but that word means listen and obey together. For the word Shema, these two ideas actually can't be separated. To listen is to obey. And I think that Philip grasped this in his soul. To receive a word from the Lord was something to be obeyed, not negotiated. And although I believe that God can handle our questions and our doubts and all that stuff, we have to admire Philip's readiness. 
His willingness to jump in with both feet, no matter what the context was, was zero details. And when I read this, I have to wonder, am I attentive to the Spirit of God like that? Am I open to and am I ready for what God is doing in and around me? Do we find ourselves in a place where we're ready to follow the leading of God's Spirit? Are we awake? Are we mindful of ourselves in that space? There's an author that I've come to really admire. Her name is Dr. Amy Oden. And she wrote a book about Christian mindfulness. And she writes this. In a world where so many feel that they are sleepwalking through their lives, Jesus' call to be awake resonates with the vague awareness of missing out on our own lives. The Spirit can be speaking into our lives. God can be moving in us. And we will miss it entirely because we are lost in mental machinations. See, in a dominant culture that in my personal experience is pretty defensive and polarized and self-absorbed and preoccupied, I think it is crucial that we as followers of Jesus learn how to listen. Not just so that we can react or defend, but so that God and people can be heard and be understood. We are called to listen and obey, to love God and to love people. I don't think it's an accident that the command to listen and the command to love are given in the same breath. They are connected to each other. The author David Augsburger said, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Being a good listener is an integral facet of being a loving person. The interaction between Philip and the Ethiopian is read in less than three minutes. But if you look at the geography of the story and how long it likely would have taken them to come upon some water in their route, they probably spent the better part of a day together. Philip acted as a guide to the scriptures, but in order to guide this man through the scriptures, he needed to know what questions he had about what he was reading. Is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And I think there's a lesson in here for us when it comes to how we talk about our faith. Because not everyone is going to have the same entry point and the same questions to this conversation. So we don't have the option to be relationally lazy. We have to be listening to the questions that people are asking. Some people are going to have questions about history or about science or about theology. And it can be easy for us to feel defensive at questions that we don't see the unspoken longing and pain behind those questions, right? Behind every doubt is an unspoken longing for hope. Have you noticed that about yourself? I know I have. So if we want to love people well, we have to be willing to listen well so that we can discern how to love them well. Let's talk about the Ethiopian. There's a bit that we can observe about him by the details in the story. He's obviously from Ethiopia, which is a country in Africa. He's likely a person of great status because he's in direct service of the queen, and he's physically a eunuch, which means he has been castrated. If you don't know what castration is, just, you know, ask the person next to you discreetly. You don't know what you don't know, you know? Now, when someone in his culture would have been castrated, it could have been forced upon him, or likely it would have been something that he would have quote-unquote chosen for himself at a very young age. And it would have been communicated that he would be relegated to the service of the queen, that that's what his life would be. He'd be tending to the nation's most important responsibilities. So he had access to wealth and power, right? He's in a chariot, but his existence, his identity is completely utilitarian in his society. So he's like elevated 
and dehumanized at the same time. And what's fascinating about this man is that he's on his way back from worshiping in Jerusalem. This could mean a couple of things. He could be a part of the Jewish diaspora that spread about the world. He could have been a Jewish convert, or he could have been on his own you know, spiritual journey, his own personal journey of faith. But either way, he would have been rejected. He would have been denied worship at the temple because he would have been regarded as somebody who was mutilated and therefore not within the ritual guidelines for worship. So he's barred from worship at the temple. He's barred from much of the spiritual life of the Jews. And he represented one of the most profound pieces of shame that a Hebrew man can carry, the inability to produce offspring. This would have been a heavy shame to carry in a first century Jewish context. Now imagine, imagine having something that made you different than everyone else. And that is the thing that excludes you from community. That's the thing that excludes you from worship and belonging. How many people do we know who carry shame like that with them? Who feel that even if they came to church, that they wouldn't be welcome? Sure, maybe people would be nice, maybe people would be tolerant, but would I truly be welcomed? I think we have to ask ourselves, if there are people in our lives who are hurting, who are lost, who are questioning, who are searching, if we feel hesitant to invite them into our communities, to invite them into our churches, why is that? If the church is truly meant to be a place of healing and redemption, a place where anyone can experience the grace of Jesus for themselves, why do some feel as if they have no place here? See, I think it's easy for us to look back on the religious elite and the Pharisees and say like, oh, thank God I'm not like them. But we forget that we have the tendency to do exactly what they did. It just looks a little different today. Notice the passage that the Ethiopian was reading. He was reading about the prophecy of the suffering man, the Messiah, who is Jesus. Does the prophet write about himself or someone else? And Philip got to share the good news that Jesus, the Messiah, is a man that is acquainted with pain, who knows what it's like to be denied justice. In this, in this passage, it says, who can speak of his descendants? Imagine how that line would resonate with a person who is incapable of producing offspring. He's seeing himself in the story of the Savior. Imagine what good news this is to the Ethiopian a man that had experienced humiliation and exclusion from every place of worship that he visited, he learned that day that the gospel was for everyone, even him. And maybe the questions he had didn't have so much to do with like the nature of Christ's miracles or the theology of the Sabbath. Maybe his questions had more to do with whether or not someone like him had a place in the family of God. What can keep me from being baptized? I was listening to Dr. Kara Powell She's a theologian who's done a lot of work at Fuller Theological Seminary with youth. Our high school students are here, by the way. What's up, guys? Kara Powell, she mentioned something when I was listening to her speak one day. She said, the problem with youth ministry today is that the church is often answering questions that people aren't asking. Whoops. <laughs> so how do we know what people are asking? We have to get better at listening. We have to hear the questions that people are asking. And listening has everything to do with empathy, doesn't it? It's hard for me to love someone if I don't have empathy, and it's hard for me to have empathy if I don't know your story. 
When Brene Brown talks about empathy, I'm paraphrasing, but she says, it's not about you learning what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. It's about someone telling you what it's like to be in their shoes and you believing them. I used to have a very weird but a very cool job. I worked for a nonprofit organization called First Image, Christian organization, and they help run the pregnancy resource centers in the greater Portland area. And I was the director of the sexual integrity program, which means that I got to go around to public high schools, about 25 of them, go to the health classes and talk about things like pornography and sexual abuse and sex trafficking, you know, all the light stuff. And the students, they used to call me the sex man. Because that's what I talked about when they saw me, so I was the sex man. It, in the classroom, it's a harmless joke, right? But in public? <laughs> I remember I walked into an old spaghetti factory one night with my family, and there was a host that recognized me from their high school. And they said, hey, in a very full waiting room, you're the sex man. <laughs> and I said, hey, shut up. <laughs> you're going to get me arrested on a Tuesday. used to happen a lot, actually. It was really embarrassing. I love that job. I love the students. And when I was in that job, you can imagine, I encountered a lot of people with very hard stories. I remember I was at a high school speaking to a health class one day, and there was a freshman there who was in the midst of transitioning from identifying as a female to identifying as a male. And during the presentation, they raised their hand and uh, began to share their experience with sexual abuse. And I could tell that people were starting to get uncomfortable, and so I I interrupted her. I said, hey, thank you so much for your courage, for your vulnerability. Can we talk after class? And so after class was over, I sat, and I listened as this student gave me an almost unbelievable history of abuse in her life. And my heart broke in new ways that day. More than anything, I just wanted to wrap my arms around this child and tell them that Jesus Jesus loved them more radically than they could possibly imagine. But I was on the clock and talking about faith in the context of the classroom. Could have gotten our program uninvited. So I walked to my car, I got in, I locked the door, and I began to weep. And I wasn't just sad, I was angry. And I remember my prayer distinctly that day. I said, God, your kingdom better be doing what it's supposed to be doing. Because she cannot do this alone. You can't let her do this alone. And I can only hope that there were Jesus followers out there who had the heart of Philip, who were willing to reveal the goodness of God's love for a young person despite whatever sensibilities they had that were being offended, that made them feel uncomfortable. Because think about it, when we hear the word transgender, for example, right, we've been conditioned by our popular media to immediately jump to debate around things like public policy and school curriculum and theology and morality and agenda. But how many human beings get bypassed? How many stories don't get heard because we're so busy debating about them that we can't see them? I can tell you right now, Jesus cares far more about that student's heart than he does around the policies surrounding them. Are we listening? Are we addressing the questions that people are actually asking? 
Notice that this story is truly a dialogue between Philip and the Ethiopian, who the Ethiopian has already been pursuing God and pursuing Jesus without even realizing it in this Old Testament prophecy. And I think people in this world are in pursuit of Jesus without even realizing it. People are often looking for something they don't know they can find in Jesus. Are we awake? Are we attentive? Are we listening? Are we ready for those opportunities? Like we heard about with the woman at the well last week, we want water, but Jesus wants to give us a life in which we never thirst again. That is the good news that we bear. Are we ready to share it with others? I think God sent Philip to this man because this is exactly the kind of thing Jesus was doing when he walked the earth. He was not looking for reasons to keep people out. He was going out of his way. He was inconveniencing himself to show mercy to the poor, the sinful, the sick, the pariahs, people who felt that who they were disqualified them from being in the presence of God. So he was bringing the presence of God to them. We get to do that now. We get to carry the presence of God to people who don't feel like they deserve it, who don't feel like they belong. The Jesus we see in the scriptures is far more concerned with mercy and with setting people free than he is with religion and with rules, I guarantee you. And I think we can tend to think of ourselves as gatekeepers to the kingdom, guards rather than guides, right? Being a guide simply implies that I've been there before, right? A guide isn't innately better than the person being guided. They had to be guided once themselves. I used to work for guest services at a mall in Orange County called Irvine Spectrum. And a big part of my job was giving directions to people, which if you know me and how directionally challenged I am, you know what a joke that is. But a big part of my job was guiding people to different stores and stuff. I was a guide, but I didn't build the mall. I didn't sketch the architecture. I didn't know the mall because of that. The only reason I knew my way around the mall was because someone else showed me. And to be honest with you, sometimes even after months of working there, I still didn't know where stuff was. But boy, was I confident when I lied about it. I was. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is like this. It makes sense, I promise. I didn't guide people around the mall. I didn't design the mall or build it myself. And the same is true of the kingdom. I did not bring about victory over death and evil and inaugurate a new humanity where heaven and earth were reunited. I wouldn't even know how to do that. I was shown the grace and goodness of God, but I had nothing to do with making him good. So why would I be territorial about that? Why would I want to police who gets to experience that and who doesn't? Whether you've been following Jesus for 50 years or 50 minutes, we all have a lot to learn about who God is and what he's doing. And if you can't admit that, maybe we need to have a talk afterwards. We are not commissioned by Jesus to be gatekeepers to the kingdom of heaven. We are commissioned to be ambassadors of it. Guides. Jesus says that we are salt and we are light. Salt brings flavor. It's medicinal. It preserves what is good. Light is to be put on a pedestal to share with everyone in the house, not to be hidden. This is who we are. We are to generously and freely share what was so generously and joyfully given to us, even if a person offends my cultural or social sensibilities. I have an obligation to extend to them the same love and mercy that was shown to me. Guess what? I am not the judge of the living and the dead. That job is taken. I am a bearer of good news.
That's what we get to do. This man would have been offensive to Jewish sensibilities. Devout Jews would have been offended by his very presence. But God sent Philip to run after this man. Not surprising when Jesus is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to find the one. I have to ask, do we find ourselves in a place where we are more concerned about our religious sensibilities and our comforts than we are about doing what God sent us to do? Extending his grace. I think we sometimes find ourselves getting into a way of thinking about faith of who's in and who's out, policing the borders. We become gatekeepers of the kingdom, and it looks kind of like this graph up here. If you choose to believe the right things and practice the right behavior, then you can belong. Then you can be accepted. If you clean up your life to look like mine, if you can make your life look like a good Christian, then you can be in the club. But until you check the right boxes and say the right prayer, you're out. Tell me. Where in this do we see the heart of Jesus to leave the 99 to find the one? Where in this do we see a suffering Messiah who enters into our suffering and our pain to identify us and then bring us into a new life? This is not how Jesus works. Jesus enters into the lives of the forgotten and the unseen and he invites us to follow him. And then as we spend time in relationship with this savior, then we begin to transform. It's not the other way around. I think that the kingdom of heaven looks a lot closer to this next graph. So many people doing and believing so many different things. Some people really close to right behavior and right belief and some really far away. But listen, our proximity to religion is far less important than the orientation of our lives towards Jesus. Because listen, I can subscribe to the most correct beliefs and the, most, the best practices, but I can still fail to notice when Jesus walks into the room because I'm not looking for him. Like the Pharisees, we can become so obsessed with rules that we've forgotten about grace. And listen, this also does not mean that right beliefs and right behaviors are not important. They are important. What you believe will ultimately shape how you exist in this world. And following Jesus doesn't really make sense if you don't believe he is who he says he is. But listen, there are all sorts of beliefs that get worked out and ironed out as we mature in Christ. How many of you have ever changed your mind about something really big after you started following Jesus? Yo, I should be seeing way more hands than that. <laughs> because that's what he's in the business of doing, transforming us, reshaping us. And I'm also not suggesting that we shouldn't change our behavior based on what Jesus asked us to do, right? I loved hearing Luis Palau speak. And he used to say this. He used to say, Jesus loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. I love that. Obviously, there is an invitation from Jesus to make him the Lord of our lives and radically transform our beliefs and our behaviors. But listen, Jesus is in the business of transforming us into his likeness. He's not in the business of transforming other people into our likeness. It's not what he does. But sometimes I think we'd be more comfortable if he did it that way. Maybe we shouldn't be so concerned with changing people and correcting them. We should trust Jesus and Holy Spirit to work that out. Maybe instead of guarding our tradition and our comforts out of insecurity, we should be running towards the least likely and the least sensible people to extend God's mercy because that's what Jesus would do. We shouldn't be looking for excuses not to extend mercy. We should be hungry like Philip for every opportunity at the drop of the hat, jump in. I'm ready to love people where they are. Because listen, the disciples, they got a lot of stuff wrong before they met Jesus, right? They got a lot of stuff wrong while they were following Jesus. And guess what? They continued to get stuff wrong even after he ascended. 
Transformation is not a prerequisite to following Jesus. Transformation is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Okay, sorry, back to the story. So they come upon some water in the desert and you can almost hear the hopeful anticipation in his voice. What can keep me from being baptized? I've been denied my whole life. I've been told why I don't fit, why I'm different. Lay it on me. What do I have to do this time? What's gonna keep me? And Philip, without even saying a word, communicates absolutely nothing. The good news of Jesus is for everyone. I will baptize you right here, right now. Are we listening? Are we ready to extend the gospel to everyone? What's also interesting in the story is that the Ethiopian was searching. He was hungry for truth. Guys, our world is hungry right now. We are wrestling with some really tough questions. We are watching some really disturbing realities unfold around us. There's the looming threat of a large-scale military conflict. There's the lingering trauma of a global pandemic. There's a refugee crisis. There are, there's all kinds of horrible things that we're trying to recover from. Does the world see in us a community where they can belong before they get their behaviors and beliefs in order? Do they see room for themselves in the story that we are telling? Do they see themselves in Jesus who is acquainted with their pain? Do they see a savior who was also denied justice? They need to be able to identify with a savior who is familiar with pain. If you feel comfortable, I'm just gonna ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. I'd like to end with a time of reflection because at the end of the day, what I say is not all that important. What God does in your heart is very important. Some of you are resonating with what I've said. Some of you are really frustrated with me and you wish you had something to throw at me right now. Work it out with you and God. Invite the Holy Spirit into this process. Maybe you felt convicted. Maybe there are people in your life to whom you have yet to truly listen to, yet to truly love. Perhaps there are people on the outside that you need to extend love towards. Ask God to bring those people to your minds. Ask him to show you the opportunities that he's given to you to extend grace and mercy. And then begin to pray for those people. Maybe you're in this room and you feel more like the Ethiopian. Maybe there's something that you've been wrestling with. There's a shame that you carry that you feel disqualifies you from belonging in Christ. And I gotta tell you, there is nothing that you can carry. There is no shame, there is no guilt that you can carry that will keep you from entering into community with Christ. Maybe what you need to hear this morning is this truth. Jesus deeply loves you and desires for you to be with him. And maybe you've been wrestling with these questions a long time and maybe you're finally here this morning and you're like, you know what, it's time I'm ready to confess that I need Jesus. Maybe you don't know a lot about theology. Maybe you still have a lot of questions to work out. That's okay. But you're at a place where you're like, you know what? I think Jesus is real. And I'm ready to follow him. Jesus went to the cross and he rose again so that he could defeat evil and sin and then resurrect us into new life. That's what he offers you. And if you're ready to kind of take that step, prayer can be a great place to start. So just talk to him. Tell him where you're at. Tell him what you're feeling and tell him that you want to give your life to him. 
Thank him for who he is and what he's done. I'm gonna give us a moment to sit and pray and reflect. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you understand, that you see us, that you hear us. And we thank you that you have given us purpose in this life to be conduits of that love and that grace. We ask that you'd show us what that looks like. We thank you for how good you are. And we love you. In your name we pray, amen. If you um, said a prayer that you wanted to start following Jesus, the good news is you get to do that in community, not just with this church, but like a really, really big family across the world, which is really cool. So tell somebody about it. There are some elders that are here. They have like orange lanyards on. They'd love to pray with you and talk to you. Most of them aren't that awkward. No, they're all really great. I'm just kidding. Um, They're really great. And they'd love to hear your story. Otherwise, uh, we hope you guys have a great rest of your day and we'll see you next time. Spirit to just bring those people to your mind. And then I want you to pray for them. Ask Jesus to give you opportunities to share his love with them. And maybe you're in this room and you feel more like the Ethiopian. Maybe there's something that you've been wrestling with. Maybe there's a shame that you carry that you feel disqualifies you from belonging in Christ. And perhaps what you need to hear this morning is that Jesus loves you deeply and he wants you to be with him. And if that's you and you feel like, you know what, maybe it's finally time. Yeah, maybe there's all sorts of details to work out and questions that you still have. But you've come to a place where you're ready to confess that you need Jesus. Maybe you don't know a lot about theology, but maybe you're ready to say, Jesus, I I believe in you and I'm ready to make you the Lord of my life. I'm ready to try doing things your way. If you're in that spot, prayer can be a great place to start. Just take this moment to talk to Jesus. Tell him what you're feeling, and then tell him that you're ready to follow him. He went to the cross, he died, and he rose again so that he could defeat sin and death and rescue you from that shame. And he wants to offer you a new life. He's inviting you to something new. So thank him for what he's done and tell him that you're ready to give your life to him. I'm just gonna sit in a moment in silence and allow us to pray and reflect.
Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the good work that you continue to do. We ask that you would give us boldness, courage, that you would help us to be awake, to be attentive, to be listening to what you're doing. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a great time, guys.